Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5 and 9 through 10. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance, nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, as for the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. And now, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, 
for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Got to put my mic on. Uh, good morning, I'm Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint Church, and we are in our Advent series, and this morning two candles were lit, and we thank Megan and the Musasa family uh, for that. We wanted them to both be here, but just because of COVID they couldn't, but they're both in the same small group, and it's neat to hear just different stories of God's faithfulness, even during this difficult time. We lit the, normally you light one candle per Sunday, we started Advent a week later this year, so we lit the joy candle and the peace candle this morning. If you notice the joy candle is pink, that's intentional, it's a different color, just, and it, it just symbolizes that even in the midst of, of the brokenness and the suffering that we can have joy. And joy is something that God gives us and allows us to have even when circumstances are hard. And this Christmas Eve, we will have a, we will have a pre-recorded uh, live stream service and the Song family will actually light the Christ candle and do our final Advent reading. Uh, so we were thankful for to have some newer folks. Uh, Megan has been in the church for about a year and the Song family has been here just since the quarantine time. And I, I know we're not together and it's hard. We don't get to see each other and meet new people, but God is with us and we can have joy even in this time. This we're in this Advent sermon series uh, that's part of our greater series that's going to go from Advent to after Easter, where we're looking at Matthew and Isaiah together. This morning we heard from Matthew 11, I mean from Isaiah 11 and Matthew chapter 2. And before we dig into Matthew's accounts of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, I want to ask a question. And I think this is a question that a lot of us have, and we've had it before this year, but definitely this year has brought a lot of these questions about God and what is God doing? And what are some of the questions people have about God or the questions they have toward God or they wonder about God? And I hear these questions a lot. Is God near? Is God faithful? Is God good? Is God listening? Is God working in the world right now? These are basically questions about hope and love and joy and peace, the four themes of Advent. Where is God and is God, is there hope? Is God loving? How do we have hope when the world is so sinful and broken? Is God really the God of love when I don't feel his love and I see so much hate and hurt in the church? How do I have joy in the midst of the waiting and the suffering and the pain and the brokenness? Can there be peace now? And all these questions go back to the four that I originally stated. Is God near? Has God abandoned us? Is God faithful? Is God listening? Is God working in the world right now? And I think these are the same questions that God's people were asking in Palestine in the first century at the time of the birth of Jesus. And Matthew is showing God's people and us, we're God's people too. He's showing the first century uh, Jews and the Gentile converts. He's showing them that God is faithful, God is near, God is listening, and God is working. And all of these are shown in the birth of Jesus in the account as, as Matthew presents it. That he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament hope. So I want you to remember that. That's the general theme of this sermon. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament hope, all world hope, all the hope that anybody has, everything everybody's been looking for forever, Jesus is the answer. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word is this thing, this logos, this, this thing that every culture everywhere has trying to figure out what's the source, why are we here, and what are we supposed to do? And Jesus is the answer to all those questions. He's the answer to the Jewish people who are longing for this Messiah. And he's the answer for the, all these Gentile groups that are also longing for what's the answer. Around the time of, of Isaiah and Malachi and these, these other prophets of Israel, the Greeks were struggling with the answer. The Chinese, all the ancient civilizations. Actually, a lot of the great philosophers, Confucius and, and Lao Tzu and, and the Buddha and all these guys came out around that same time. Everyone's trying to find this source. And we learn in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus is the answer. He's the hope for the Jews, but he's the hope for everyone. Hope has come in a person. Love has come in a person. And we can have joy and peace now in the present and a hope for the future. So let's look at how Matthew shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament hope and is the hope of all the world. And I want to mention here that there are four Gospels, four accounts of Jesus, and they're all covering the life of Jesus from different authors, but each one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is focusing on teaching us different elements so that we can know Jesus. They're not identical on purpose, because each of them had a different purpose to teach the church different elements of who Jesus was and what he did and what he taught. And there are two accounts of the birth of Jesus. One is in Matthew and one is in Luke. And each of them are showing the audience different elements of the birth of Jesus for a specific purpose. They don't even mention the same things. And that's intentional because a lot of what they mention in the birth account shows up in later the rest of the story and the, the ways that they're showing us who Jesus is and what he did and how he fulfills God's promises. And Matthew one of the main things Matthew is doing in chapters 1 and 2 of, of his gospel is proclaiming to his first century Jewish audience that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament anticipation and prophecy about the Messiah. And then here in chapter 2, I see four proclamations about Jesus that Matthew highlights surrounding the events of his birth. The four proclamations are Jesus is the rightful king. He's the Messiah. Jesus is the king for all nations. Jesus is the new exodus, and Jesus is the branch. So let's dive right in. Jesus is the rightful king, the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 2, this is how Matthew starts it off. He says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So Matthew wants to start the account by telling us that Magi come. Luke wants to tell us about the shepherds. And the prophecies of Anna and Zacharias and these other people that were anticipating and waiting for this Messiah. But, but Matthew wants to start off with this account that these magi from the east come to Jerusalem and they say, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So people who have nothing to do with the Jewish community. Obviously, they, they're some way connected and I'll explain who the magi are a little later in the sermon but they, they, they're, they're familiar. The Jews, remember, went into Persia and Babylon. They went into exile. So their writings and their scriptures are scattered throughout what is now the Roman Empire and even beyond the Roman Empire. So they would have known about this. But they, they're not even Jews themselves. They are Gentiles. They are astrologers. They are stargazers, soothsayers. You know, they are fortune teller types. 
have nothing to do with the law of Moses or the things of God, but they come to worship this king because they, they look to the stars for answers. And they see the star and they're like, something's up. Something has to be fulfilled. And then it goes on. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea. They replied, for this is what the, what the prophet has written. And it says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means are at least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod calls them in and says, you know, go find this kid in Bethlehem. And so Herod tells them to direct them to Bethlehem. But then he says, report to me so that I will go worship him too. Herod had no intention of worshiping him at all. He did not want to worship him. He wanted to kill him and that shows up later. So right now at this point of the narrative, what is Matthew trying to show us? He's trying to show us that there's two, there's, there's three groups of kings going on right now. One is there's this Davidic line, the line of David, and there's all these kings in, Matt, in uh, Joseph's line. He's giving us Joseph's genealogy. Scholars think that Luke is giving us Mary's genealogy, and they both come from David, which is really cool. But in, in Joseph's genealogy, he is actually a descendant of David, and there's tons of kings in his genealogy. There's David, there's Solomon, there's Ahaz, the one who we talked about uh, two weeks ago with, that Isaiah is confronts all these kings. So there's this kingly line of Joseph and Ahaz and the other kings disobey, but Joseph hears the angel and obeys. So even Matthew's kind of painting the picture that Joseph's better than Herod. Mary, Luke is kind of saying Mary's better than Herod. They're more rightful heir to the throne than even Herod is. Look at Herod. Look at the, look at how bad things are. There's another set of royal people involved. That's the Magi. And again, I'll talk about them later, give you more details when we talk about the next, the nations. But they're sent, they're representatives of a royal court. They're wealthy, royal government type people. So Matthew's showing like this, this royal line of David, but with these poor peasants, Joseph, who obeys God when the kings don't obey the angel, don't obey God. Then he's showing this terrible king, Herod. And in this prophecy that we read in earlier, the prophecy where it says, you know, but you Bethlehem, and then it says a shepherd will come out of Israel. This is actually a fusing of two passages from scripture. This is a fusing from Micah 5. That's the Bethlehem part. But the part about the shepherd, the ruler and the shepherd is not in Micah 5. It's actually from first Sam, second Samuel 5, 1 and 2, when David is, when Saul loses his kingship, and God appoints David as king. And, and it, it says in, in verse 2, it says, And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. So you see what Matthew's doing. He's trying to say, Yeah, Bethlehem, David, Herod's neither of these. So Herod starts panicking. He's paranoid. He is losing. He's like, Oh no. If this is true, my family line, Herod's half Jewish, half kind of Sumerian, he, he's, he's, he's not full Jewish, and his family line is not from David, and he's a puppet king for the Jews under the Roman authority, and he has nothing to do with this Davidic line, and he definitely has nothing to do with Bethlehem, and he starts panicking. And Psalm 72, Solomon penned a psalm that, that, that the 
priests and the scribes and the Pharisees would have been aware of. And it talks about endowing your king with justice, O God, the royal son with righteousness. May he judge your people, your afflicted ones, with justice. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to go on to verse 17. It ends with this. It says, may his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the God, the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So the people were looking for this king. They, they knew Herod was not the Messiah, but Herod wanted to keep his power and he was doing everything he could to keep his power. But this is the king that the people like Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah, the poor people, the common people, they were like crying out, God, where are you? Are you, are you here? Are you listening? It's so bad. The Romans are taxing us. The Herod's taxing us. We're not living in the land of prosperity that you promised Moses and Joshua as they entered in. We're physically in the promised land, but we're living in darkness. Please, God, send your Messiah. And there's another king at play that we hear about later on in Matthew, and that's at the end of Matthew's account, when Jesus goes to the cross, and there's Caesar, and Pilate is his representative. And Pilate also gets warned in a dream, like the Magi. So two Gentiles get warned in a dream about stuff, you know. God is moving even among these Gentile people. And Pilate but still chooses to king, kill Jesus. And one of Pilate's soldiers calls Jesus the king of the Jews, which is the only time in Matthew he's called that other than by the Magi in chapter 2. You see what, Luke, see what Matthew's doing? And, but instead of a bright star at the death of Jesus, there's darkness across the land as they kill him. And there's one Gentile voice. What does he say? As Jesus is dying, as he dies, he says, surely he was the son of God. See what Matthew's doing, starting with the Magi, ending with the Romans. He's saying there's there's earthly authorities, there's earthly powers. But there's Jesus, the light, the government is on his shoulders from the lowly. Joseph and Mary will come. The king of us all. What gifts will we bring this king? The Magi come. So in Matthew's account, we have these four royal groups and the fourth one, and two of them miss it. Herod and Pilate miss it. They see Jesus as a threat and they try to kill him. But two of them get it. Joseph and Mary get it. And the Magi get it. And they come to worship him. So who are the Magi? We three kings of Orient are. There's a video, a VHS tape somewhere in my parents' house of 1983 or 1984. You know, Way of Life Church, Plantation, Florida. Danny is a king. I'm one of the three kings. I don't know why they call them kings. They're actually more, like I said, like soothsayer, uh, fortune teller types, wise men who worked for the king. But... Who are these Magi? Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar, says the Magi were not kings, but a combination of wise men and priests, probably from Persia. Now, remember, Persia, during the time of Isaiah, had Jewish exiles there. So they had access to the Hebrew scriptures and even 
would have been familiar with some of these scriptures, even, you know, five, six hundred years later. They combined uh, astrology and observations and astrological speculation. They played both political and religious roles and were figures of some prominence in their land. So that's the Magi. So then we get to the Matthew chapter 2, verse 9, and it says, After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, it rose up and went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed and worshipped him. So who's the first person to worship the new king? Other than Mary and Joseph in, in Matthew's account, it's, it's Gentiles. It's outsiders. Jesus is the king for all people. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these are gifts of royalty. These are very, very expensive gifts. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. N.T. Wright states that the arrival of the Magi introduces to us something with Math- which Matthew wants us to be clear about from the start. If Jesus is some sense of king of the Jews is in some sense king of the Jews, that doesn't mean that his rule is limited to the Jewish people. At the heart of many prophecies about the coming king, the Messiah, there were predictions about his rule to bring God's justice and peace to the whole world, like Psalm 72, like Isaiah 11, which we read earlier. Matthew will end his gospel with Jesus commissioning his followers to go out and make disciples from every nation. It seems that this is the way that all the prophecies of the Messiah worldwide rules are going to come true. So this kid, born in obscurity, is revealed by shepherds in Luke's account, Jewish shepherds, the first to get the revelation. And Matthew wants to show that the first people he proclaims that get the revelation, that worship him, are Gentile fortune tellers, star seekers, you know, People looking for the answers, and they find it, and they worship Jesus. Praise God. Jesus is the new Exodus. This is my third point. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord, this is in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled that the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now what other group went down to Egypt? God's people. And who delivers them out of Egypt? It's clear, clear Matthew is trying to show them that Jesus is the new Exodus. The Exodus is the central point. The Passover and the Exodus is the central point in Jewish teaching and theology. It's, it's there, like for us, it's kind of the, the cross and the resurrection as Christians. We, everything kind of goes back to that. To them, everything goes back to the Passover and the Exodus. And what, where they failed, Jesus doesn't fail. And we'll learn in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and comes out without falling to temptation like they did. But you see what Matthew's doing here. He's saying that Jesus is this new exodus, and that's good news for us because we were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to darkness, and the light Jesus Christ has broken through, and we are free. 
And then it goes on and talks about how when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, this is verse 16, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity according, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then it has another prophecy about women crying out. Herod becomes Pharaoh. The king of Israel becomes the murderer of Israel. The guy that they get delivered from is Pharaoh in the Exodus. Things are so bad now that the king of Israel becomes Pharaoh. The people were waiting for the hope of the Messiah. They knew that Herod, there was no hope in the government and the systems. But what's interesting is all the disciples wanted Jesus to just replace Herod and the Roman government. And he doesn't. He's like, I come to bring a new type of kingdom, which he starts proclaiming in Matthew chapter 5. A different kingdom. It's not the law of Moses and it's not the law of Rome or the law of Persia. It's a new kingdom, a change of hearts. That's the kingdom that Jesus comes to usher in. So Jesus is the new exodus. And finally, my fourth point about this passage that we can pull from and that Matthew really wants us to see is Jesus is the branch. This is another quote from New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. It was so good. I just I didn't want to paraphrase him. So I just just I'm going to quote him. Matthew links the settling of the family in Nazareth. So at the end of the account, let me let me actually read it. He says, so Joseph and Mary, they got up, they took the child, this is verse 21, and his, and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But they had heard that Archelaus uh, was reigning in Judea. So Herod dies, and his sons become puppet kings, and he has multiple sons, and they have different regions they rule. Herod sets this up before his death. And he was afraid to go there, having been warned in a dream. So he thought maybe we should settle back in Bethlehem, because we have, you know, they knew Jesus was special. But he gets warned in a dream and he goes back to his home district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this word Nazarene is interesting. It, it kind of means like hillbilly, backwood, far away. Jerusalem was the civilized place. This was past Samaria. They were way, way out in the country. Jerusalem was where the, the priests and the civilized people were. And here's way, way out. The king wouldn't come from this place. This is the poor people. This is the lowly. But also the word Nazarene, and this is the quote I was reading earlier. Matthew links the settling of the family in Nazareth with the prophecy of Isaiah 1.1. There the word Nazir, which is the Hebrew word branch. A branch, says Isaiah, that will grow out of the root of Jesse. In other words, a beginning will be made from the royal house of David. This is what the whole passage is promising, and Matthew is determined to find hints of it wherever he can. In Jesus, despite the frantic and tragic events that happened around his birth, but because of them. Not, sorry, in Jesus, not despite the frantic and tragic events um, that happened around his birth, but because of them. God is providing the salvation and rescue that Israel longed for, and through that, justice for the world. See what Matthew's trying to do? He's weaving all these things together. Jeremiah, the passage Pastor Lawrence read earlier in Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6, Jesus is called this righteous branch of David. It's this prophecy about this branch. 
And then in Isaiah, we looked at earlier the root that got chopped down. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. The tree gets chopped, but there's going to be the spring, the sprout. And then in Isaiah 11, we won't read it. It's the passage that David read earlier. We see this new branch that comes out that Jesus is. The stump that has been cut down to nothing grows into a beautiful garden with Christ as its head. And guess what? We're the garden. You know who the vines? Jesus says, I am the vine. But he says, you are the branches. We get to dwell with God in this garden, even though it's not perfect right now. We're not there yet. That's what we remember at Advent. But we get to be the garden of God. We get to be, we get to produce fruit, fruit that will last. Megan read the, the fruit of the Spirit. How awesome it would be if all the Christians, if the only thing we did, we were like, I'm just going to wake up today and try to live out the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. We get to be that. The stump that was cut down, this branch comes out of Mary and Joseph, the lowliest of lowly, just waiting, crying out for God, no money, poverty, and God brings peace on earth and mercy mild through the child. So how can knowing all this about the birth of Jesus, how can this lead us to joy and peace? And I have four things that I just want to quickly answer the questions from earlier that I asked, that people ask about God. Is God near? I believe this passage shows that God is near. Starting in Matthew 1, which we looked at two weeks ago, the Emmanuel, which is the reference to Isaiah 7 and 8, God is near. In John 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling, literally a tabernacle like they had in the desert in Sinai. Made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Everything that they wanted, they wanted God's presence. We got it in Jesus. That's what John proclaims. And that's what Matthew's showing us. This is really cool. About 100 years ago, a man named John Wesley Work Jr., African-American songwriter, uh, pastor, a musician at a church in Nashville when the churches were fully segregated. He went back and wrote a book. He collected a lot of, and he called the book, the collection of songs, religious folk songs of the Negro as sung on the plantations. And in his 1909 edition, he had a section called Christmas Plantation Songs. And he, he found he wanted to collect all these songs that the slaves who were Christians, who were crying out for God to deliver them. And they had some songs. And one of the songs starts off like this. It says, when I was a seeker, I sought both day and night. And I asked the Lord to help me. And he showed me the way. I sought both night and day. I asked the Lord to help me. And he showed me the way. He made me a watchman upon a city wall, which is a, a reference from Isaiah 21. And if I am a Christian, I am the least of all. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. And they found another stanza in a different uh, set of, you know, this song, because it was sung on the plantation, it was a song of joy and hope and peace in the midst of tremendous suffering. 
suffering by other Christians. Almost like you could say the plantation owners are like Herod and the slaves are like Mary and Joseph, if you want to put a modern parallel. And there's another stanza that a different person found and he recorded it in a different book. And it says, if you cannot sing like angels, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus. You can say he died for all. I can't come up with a better example of God is near. Because these people were suffering amongst, because of other Christians, people claiming to be Christ followers. And they could see God near and they could write these songs. We're going to sing that song today. The next thing we see in this passage is that it shows that God is faithful. In Galatians 4, this is an Advent passage, Galatians 4, 4, it says, When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our heart, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Paul is summing up the teaching of Christ to the Jews that this, you are God's son, you are God's child. But it's not just because of Abraham. It's because of Christ. You are fully in God's family because of this son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so they would receive Adoption as sonship. We have to look back to look ahead. But when we see that our position is secure, we can look ahead with confidence. That is where joy comes from. That is where peace comes from. We know we are heirs of Christ. It is finished. Jesus came at the right time, born under the law to redeem those so that we would receive adoption of sonship. All of us get to be part and share in this gift. The next thing that this passage shows us that I want us to remember is it shows that God is listening. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter actually quotes Psalm 34 where it says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attracted to their cry. And I bet you Mary and Joseph were reading this passage and saying, God, hear our cry. In 1 John 5, John, the disciple of Jesus, writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of in him. He is a God who listens, and by coming to Mary and Joseph and coming into the world, coming to his people, It just proved that he listens, but we know that he's still listening, and John wants us to be reminded of that. The people cried out. Other places in the New Testament, it does talk about when people cry out and God doesn't seem to hear. In Hebrews 11, the, you know, 35, toward the end of the faith chapter, it talks about those who didn't get their answer in this earth. And Paul and Peter and John talk about suffering. So it doesn't mean if that... God is listening, but that doesn't mean that all everything's going to work out exactly how we think it should. But we can be confident that God is listening and he gives us his assurance that he's listening. And finally, this 
birth account that Matthew pushed forward shows us that God is working. We studied Romans as a church just a couple weeks ago. We finished it up. But when we were at Romans 8, there's this summary, and it talks about that the whole creation is groaning up to the present time. So just like they were groaning at the time of the birth of Jesus, we're still groaning. Paul's acknowledging that things are better, things are right because of Jesus, but the creation is still groaning for this fullness, this adoption of sons. And it talks about the pouring out of the Spirit. We have the Spirit. We have Jesus, and we have the Spirit. And that just shows that God is working. The fact that we exist today, that in America, in Africa, in Korea, in China, in India, in you know, every nation, the gospel has gone. And people this morning right now are worshiping and praising God like the Magi did. It shows that God is working. I know sometimes we feel discouraged. We're like, is God really working? But the fact that the Spirit has been poured out and their church is moving throughout the world, and even in the brokenness inside the church, we can still know that God is working. And we know that God, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Paul is trying to show us this theme that the gospel writers show us in Jesus. So in closing, I, I want us to remember that Matthew wants us to, to, to like the Magi, come and worship and he wants us to show us that we have Jesus. And he wants to show us that this is good news, that we can go tell it on the mountain, that God and sinners are reconciled. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let's worship him with our gifts. Let's praise him as the God who loves us and saves us. And we just give him all the praise for this. Let's pray. God, you are the God of all nations. You honored and fulfilled all your promises to Israel and Jesus. But your promises weren't just for the physical descendants of Abraham. They were for the whole world. And God, we see that in the birth of Christ. May we bring the right gifts, God, and may we just dwell in Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. And may we come and worship him this season. In your name we pray. Amen.